Hi, everyone. This is Machines and Masterpieces, a podcast that explores the intersection of culture, technology, and economics. I am Christoph Spires, and I'm an Associate Professor of Finance at HCC Paris. My guest today is Stoyan Zgorev, who is a Professor of Management at the French Business School ESSEC. Stoyan does research on aesthetics, creativity, and art history, often from a sociological perspective. In his latest paper, he analyzes musicians' color choices for their album covers and argues that individuals and organizations can use color as a positioning device to build their identity. So I'm very happy to be able to talk to Stoyan today. Hi, Stoyan. Hi, Christoph. Let's maybe first talk about your latest paper in which you analyze the use of color by music bands. You say at the start that color can be used as a positioning device. What do you mean exactly? Well, what I mean is, is indeed what it sounds like, and that's that um, color can be used as an instrument for positioning. It's very intuitive, actually, the way that we that we use color in our everyday activities. I mean, uh, I had, for example, a colleague that uh, always was was dressed in, in black, all black. And of course, you pay attention to this, and, and you, when you ask yourself, well, why is he always dressed in, in black? Then I had another colleague that, that was completely the opposite. And, she was always dressed in very colorful, and and that contrast between the two of them, it, it always struck me as um, as intriguing. You know, why do people choose colors? And then when they're choosing colors, do they take into consideration the choices of other people, or is the choice of color more of a manifestation of personal preferences or your emotional state? And uh, this is, I think, this was the foundation for my developing interest in aesthetics and particularly the role of color. And I need to say a little bit more about where this interest comes from. I am a network scholar by by my education at Stanford. I was trained as, a, as an economic sociology with a particular emphasis on uh, net, social network analysis. So that's my that's where I come from. But then I developed a strong interest in aesthetics, and I started even teaching art history. And uh, I've written on Cubism, I've written on Impressionism. So in a sense, I think it was very natural for me that uh, my background in networks and my interest in aesthetics kind of um, came together. And what this led to is this um, interest in quantifying color. So if I understand you correctly, when you say a positioning device, what you mean is that it's not just that people's use of color reflect their aesthetic preferences, let's say, but they also use color to build an identity or to associate themselves more from or more with certain people or with certain themes and differentiate themselves from other people. Exactly. That's the uh, this is the intuition in a sense. I was just mentioning about social networks, and we have relationships on a daily basis that, that we navigate. We have relationships with others, with colleagues, but we also have relationships to objects, right? And these relationships, what I, what we do in this paper with with my co-authors, and, and I do need to emphasize the tremendous contribution of my co-authors, uh, Giovanni Vermillon, the University of Edinburgh, and, and Eric Gordon, uh, BI Oslo. So we are interested in particularly this interface between the social relations and aesthetics, in particular colors. So how do people use colors to, in a sense, they overlay colors on relationships? And of course, this is not anything new. You go back centuries and people have been using colors to designate identities for, for, for many, many centuries. 
For example, the work that I did on the Palio de Siena in that project in which I was using data from the 18th century to nowadays, there were 17 neighborhoods in the city of Siena that compete in the Palio de Siena, and each neighborhood has a particular color that it is associated with or a combination of colors. And these colors, of course, their meaning is very social in the sense that they're not self-sufficient. They also related to the colors of other neighborhoods and in particular to the colors of uh, their enemies or defense of that particular neighborhood. And of course, you see this in, in football as well, it's, which is a very natural reference point in which uh, teams, that their enemies, their rivals, I mean, usually they have contrasting colors, like the classic blue and red or more, you know, darker color with, with a brighter color. And, and the fans, they identify this particular color and, and then they use it in graffitis and, uh, you know, they build a narrative around that color. And of course, the color, it becomes an instrument by itself and it becomes an agent by itself, right? And, and that's something that, that we develop in our paper too, that Color is not just an instrument in the sense it's not just the product, but it's also an agent that, that has an impact on the social dynamic. So the intuition indeed is, is pretty simple, that, that, that people use color to position themselves, to create and to manifest an identity, and that color actually affects, uh, on its turn, it affects social relations. Yeah, so it's very interesting. Now, in your paper, you look at a very specific empirical setting, right? I already said in the introduction that you look at music bands, but in particular, you look at uh, Norwegian black metal bands. Like, why did you end up choosing this specific uh, context? Well, that's a great question. And, and we know each other. I think I can be completely honest with you. The reason is that one of my calls, to say Godland, actually used to be a black metal musician. For a while, so he, he knows he knows quite well the context, and and he was involved in the periphery of of the of that musical scene in the beginning of the of the 1990s, and that was very naturally an incentive, you know, for us just the knowledge of of the context. But the reason specifically why we are looking at at black metal for the analysis of color, uh, it has to do with the fact that the the stakes are higher, meaning that uh, there are very few genres in music that plays such an importance on color. Black metal, and, and you know, even by the name of it, you know, being called black metal, color is absolutely fundamental to the identity of, of, of the genre. And for us, this was important because naturally, when you're studying color, you would like to collect data in a setting in which color really matters. Because there's, of course, there's no doubt that there are contexts in which uh, the importance of color is rather subdued, you know. And we discuss in the paper that uh, people, you know, they use different aesthetic strategies in the sense that you can manifest your identity in different ways. It can be through color, but it could be through a particular form. It could be through another stylistic element. So we knew that in this particular context of black metal, color matters tremendously. And uh, this high sensitivity to color for us was important because we knew that, that uh, it's very likely that, that we'll find significant statistical variation, which is absolutely essential for the, for the success of the study. So that was the reason why we turned to, uh, to black metal. Color mattered, and, and then we also knew from our fieldwork and, and from also from Eric's recollections that people defined themselves uh, through the clothes, and they were known for their dark appearance. Uh, the musicians, indeed, 
they were almost exclusively clad in black, and and there was a very visceral disdain for colors because colors were associated with the mainstream, and it were associated with, in particular, death metal, which at, at that point in the beginning of the 1990s was was very popular, but it was also going commercial. So black metal positioned itself against death metal. Black metal emerged in Norway, and death metal was a uh, it was a Swedish genre that evolved in Sweden. So black metal positioned itself against death metal as an underground movement and strongly identified with the dark color against the colors of uh, of death metal. Can you say something about the hypothesis going into the empirical part of your research? I mean, it's not just that you look at uh, whether black metal bands use darker album covers than other types of bands, right? So you, you also have some interesting hypotheses related to the time series variation in this. So maybe can you explain that a bit more? Well, our basic expectation is, is that um, black metal bands employ the, the black color as a means of affirmation of an identity of, of opposition to both popular culture, which is kind of the rich colors, and to institutional religion. And religion is associated with whiteness, you know. So so we're particularly interested in, in, in these contrasts between black and, and, and color, but also the contrast black and, and white. And um, we expected, and, and that's a, a very basic sociological explanation, is that we would find kind of a twofold or a dual movement over time. So, so that black metal bands would position themselves relative to non-black metal bands, right? So we were expecting that they pay attention to non-black metal bands, in particular death metal. But at the same time, we expected that they would position themselves at a significantly lower level of colorfulness and at a significantly higher level of contrast. So this is um, very much along the lines of the sociologist George Zimmel uh, from the beginning of, of the 20th century, who talks about aesthetic choices as essentially driven by the need for association and disassociation. So for Zimmel, essentially all aesthetic choices, and he meant fashion in, in particular, aesthetic choices are driven by this, you know, the two drive, the two forces, you know, the forces of association and the forces of disassociation, you know, and they're simultaneous. And, you know, the identities, they come from those two forces, you know, from the way that those uh, two forces interact. So this was our basic expectation that, that you're going, we're going to find something like this. We're going to find evidence for association and simultaneously for disassociation. And that's indeed, you know, the, the data demonstrated that that's indeed the case. You know, we found that the lines are, are, are very much parallel all the time, but then there's always this very significant difference between the two. So substantively, what this means is, is that the black metal bands, they were definitely their main reference point was the non-black metal bands, you know, the bands that were commercially successful. So they were keeping an eye on them, but at the same time, they were trying to differentiate from them. And for us, th th this was very interesting. And then what we did also is we looked, uh, because we had data from the beginning of the genre, which is around 1991, 92, until... 2000 and roughly 2020. So we have about three three decades of data. We also looked at uh, important exogenous events and 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 the two defining events in the history of, of black metal. Uh, first of all, the stigmatization of of the genre around 1995, and then the subsequent commercialization of the genre in the early 2000s. And the stigmatization of the genre was 
that was in what occurred in Norway in in the early 1990s is that members of uh, this circle of, of of black metal they set on fire more than 30 wooden churches in in Norway and it was a huge scandal in Norway and and, and as a result some of this of these people were jailed and you know there were sentences and and black metal was heavily stigmatized in, in Norwegian society. So we were very interested in the reaction of, of the bands to this stigmatization. And uh, the second defining event was the commercialization of the genre, which in, in the beginning of 2000s, black metal started selling internationally and it really took off. And we were also interested in how the bands reacted to the increasing commercial success of the genre. And what we found is, um, in, in a way, similar to the previous finding of association and disassociation, in the sense that uh, we found that the reaction to stigmatization was pretty much as expected in, in the literature on stigmatization, for example, in sociology and, and management. We know that, that actors that are stigmatized, I mean, they generally try to reduce the social pressure by normalization, by efforts for, for normalization to appear normal. And this is why we expected that, that uh, the black metal bands would most likely reduce the level of contrast on, on their albums, and they would increase the level of colorfulness so that they appear a bit more mainstream and less aggressive. Uh, and that's indeed what we found, the, a very significant effect that, that uh, the cover albums change around that period and, and they tend to be less aggressive, they tend to be less dark, you know, with more colors. But what we also found is that as the genre became successful all the time, there was a reaction to commercialization as well. And you see this reaction not only in black metal, but in other underground genres as well, when they start becoming successful, there's a process of bifurcation. So some of the of the bands, they become attracted by the commercialization and they start playing the, you know, this, this new game, right? And at the same time, a part of the bands goes exactly in the opposite direction. So they want to return to the past. They crave for authenticity and they consider commercialization of the genre as a negative development. So our expectation was that uh, there would be a reaction against commercialization in, in, in black metal. And that's indeed what you know the data demonstrated, that uh, with the commercialization of black metal, there's a very visible, very significant desire to go back to what was viewed as authentic black metal. And authentic black metal is darker lyrics. And, and when it comes to color, certainly fewer colors and more aggressive contrast, you know, stronger contrast, more intense contrast. So th that's what we found all the time. So, so there's a lot of interesting things in, in what you say. So first of all, I heard you saying at the end, it's also reflects the lyrics. You say darker lyrics as well. So I guess there's also this question of whether the colors that bands use in their album covers, whether that correlates with sort of, I don't know, the darkness of the lyrics or the darkness of the music. Is this something you've, you've looked at? We we did we did I mean it, it's it's very natural indeed you know that I mean bands try to be to be fairly consistent even underground bands like in black metal I mean they try to be consistent in their aesthetic presence so that there is alignment between the lyrics and and the album covers and and then their clothes for example and of course there's there's considerable evidence for this 
sociologists are becoming more and more interested in, in this. And there are a number of very interesting papers over the last three or four years that are looking at relationships between stylistic elements. For example, the work of, of uh, and this is somebody who I recommend that you invite to your program, that's Frederic Godard at, at INSEAD. And he's done fantastic work on, on uh, fashion in which he looks at, uh, he creates a network of, of stylistic elements and the relationships between elements and demonstrates that, you know, that, that these relationships are very important and they have salient consequences for the identities of cultural producers. And, and we found something very similar in our data that there was an alignment between the lyrics of the, of the songs and the aesthetic presence and, and, and the colors. So we called it uh, the whether the, the bands, we, we split them up into pure bands and hybrid bands. And pure bands are the ones that kind of stick to the traditional black metal formula, right? And then the, the hybrid bands are the ones that tend to experiment more. They, they try to move away from, from the traditional script and they connect to other genres. So, for example, they might use elements from folk music or they can connect to even popular music or even symphonic and, and classical music in some cases. So they try to reach out to other genres and, and create bridges with, with other genres. While the pure bands, you know, they, they try to stick to the, to the old formula, to the traditional formula. And of course, we found that this choice was very much correlated and aligned with the choice of colors. So the pure bands tend to be darker. They, they tend to feature fewer colors. And of course, the, the bands that are more hybrid in, in their music, they tend to be more colorful and they tend to be less aggressive in, in, in the visual contrast that they feature on the album cover. So there is this uh, alignment between different stylistic elements that also people find in, in, um, in other genres, like, like, like fashion, for example. Yeah, so what I find interesting also about this alignment is that it mitigates a worry one might have about your research in that uh, one might worry that it's actually the record labels that decide on the album cover that it's not really a choice of the musician right if you think about response to stigmatization one might build a story in which record labels are making those choices to make the album covers less black or less dark and not the musicians themselves Absolutely. It is possible. And of course, we were very much mindful of this, but that's also another reason why we decided to study black metal rather than other genres, because it is an underground genre. So in the 1990s, black metal, for example, the, the very beginning of black metal from 91 to 95, basically black metal doesn't sell. I mean, like it's not even released commercially, you know, so there are no releases. I mean, they were trading tapes and the bands actually started getting commercial releases uh, around around 95, 95, 96, but they really became a commodity in the 2000s. You know? So it's only we can talk about commercialization in the 2000s when, when really record labels, more powerful record labels become involved with uh, black metal. But in the 1990s, the record labels that actually signed black metal bands were very small. I don't think they even they had, you know, designers working for them because, you know, they were just, you know, one or two people. In some cases, it was just a single person. So we knew that this would this concern would be less uh, relevant in, in the case of, of black metal because, you know, it, it was a, a, an underground band. And of course, we, you know, we're doing a few other, other checks, you know, to make sure that, that indeed we can rule out this 
potential concern, even though, of course, at one point, as the genre becomes more commercially successful, it is very natural that, you know, of course, it is possible that that uh, the record label might be becoming more influential in these decisions. You know, so that's that's certainly something that, that we take into consideration. Yeah. So can you say a bit more about your uh, empirical approach? I mean, in this podcast, we're also interested in new technologies and how new technologies can be applied to creative industries. So what kind of data did you collect and what kind of measures did you build using those data? Yes, yeah, so we collected the data from the most reliable sources on, on heavy metal music, and these are the, the metal archives and are available online. And uh, it's a tremendous uh, data source, and, and it's really it's an open source project, and, and it's just incredible. I mean, the tens of thousands of people that are inputting uh, information on on heavy metal bands from from all over. I mean, the, the kind of information you can find, even from small countries, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. And um, we have information on pretty much the. We focus only on Norway. I mean, that that's uh, you know that's what I I need to emphasize. This, our study uh, focuses on on Norway, but we have very extensive information on uh, on black metal in Norway and pretty much all the bands in Norway that ever played black metal. We believe are featured in in, in the data. Even bands that never released commercially anything, you know, they're still in the data. So the quality of the data is is, is excellent. And we have information on the members of the band. We have information on um, the style, rough measures of the content of the music. We have the the number of albums. And very importantly, of course, we have images. You know, we have digitalized images of, of the album covers. And these digitalized images, now I'll speak a bit more about the, the methodology, what we did. And uh, this mostly comes from the work of my co-author, Giovanni Permilan, who actually developed this, this algorithm. And this algorithm, of course, they come mostly from computer science. So we process digitalized images. And a digitalized image can be defined as a, as a spatial arrangement of three-dimensional RGB vectors or pixels, where RGB referred to colors, red, green, and, and blue components. Okay, so lower RGB values result in, in less bright and intense colors, I mean, roughly speaking. So each image can be described by a matrix when you have the number of pixels that compose the image and, and then the RGB components. And I'm not going to go into detail, but on that basis, you know, we develop measures of luminance and, and saturation of the image. So we extract the RGB components, we, we do k-means clustering, and we develop these measures of, of luminance and, and saturation. Just so to can you maybe what say we, what, what the difference is between luminance and saturation? Saturation, these are very key dimensions or measures in the perception of color. So a saturation is essentially a quantification of the colorfulness of an area judged in proportion to its brightness, okay? So it's basically, saturation is the intensity or purity of a color, and, and it is determined by how much light it emits or reflects, because th there's no single established measure, you know? And, and of course, what makes things a bit more complicated is that perception of the human eye is complex, you know? So, you know, even when we look at the same object, we, we don't... We don't look in the same way. So some people, for example, might 
focus more on contrast, but while other people focus more on the color. And we took that in, in consideration in, in our analysis. And for example, when we did a, a factor analysis, we found there are indeed two dimensions that stand out. And, and the first dimension had to do with contrast. Okay, so in an image, that's the degree of contrast between the colors. So for example, black and white. And the second dimension had to do with the number of colors, okay? And, you know, measures like saturation, you know, they allow us to capture the colorfulness of an image, you know? So you have those two dimensions. And um, we also developed additional measures to capture colorfulness, which is the more complicated dimension to capture than, than contrast. Contrast is much more intuitive. You know, colorfulness, that's their choices that need to be made. So we looked at saturation, but we also, Giovanni Fermilin, he also developed a measure of what he calls color entropy, which groups similar pixels together into categories and then considers how they're distributed proportionally in, in the image. So it, it is a reliable measure of color complexity in, in computer science. Okay. And um, these are the kind of the, the, you know, the measures that we're playing with and that we are using in, in our analysis. But as we explained to the readers of the paper, th there's a choice because it also, the choice of the measure depends on the particular objective that you have in mind. And it depends on what is really important to you. I mean, are you more interested, for example, in, in the contrast, are you more interested in the number of colors or are you interested in a combination of the two? So depending on the particular objective that you have, you can certainly use alternative measures. But so historically, like the black metal aesthetic, let's say, was high contrast and low saturation, is that it? Yes, absolutely. So traditionally, it was, uh, it's a pity that I cannot show you some images, but... Well, uh, <laughs> we can put something on the, we can put something on the <laughs> web page, I guess. Uh, but I'm sure that your listeners can just Google them. You know, you put black metal, authentic black metal, and, and it's it's very easy to find black metal images. And, and you'll see that it, in particular in the 1990s, you know, traditional Norwegian black metal, it is rather dark, you know. And what you can see also is that the uh, high degree of, of contrast, you know, you very often you see on album covers black and white. Because black metal was about the contrast of dark forces and and you know the forces of evil and the forces of good, and they didn't they didn't side with the good they side sided with the evil. So that was of course a way that you can convey it to the consumer was you convey it on the album cover by, by emphasizing this contrast between the black and the black and white. Yeah. So so stepping back from black metal for a bit, I mean, I guess you're using the black metal uh, music scene just as an empirical setting it's not that this is necessarily the, the sort of the, the the main topic of your interest right you're interested in, in the use of color as a positioning device so do, can you think of other creative industries where your approach or methods could could be used or or maybe stepping outside of the creative industries going beyond creative industries can you think of settings or types of studies where your approach and and, and methods could could be relevant I mean, I'm very excited about the opportunities that are provided by by these methods, and and I'm specifically thinking that uh, there are sources of data that up to this point we haven't really considered, like uh, product catalogs. You know, that's it's very unusual for people to look at product catalogs all the time. But if you take, for example, a, a product catalog, you know, over three decades, for example, and 
if you look at design or furniture or something, you know, and you look at the change of color, you know, or of course, very natural setting fashion, you know, how do colors change in fashion? You know, so that's something that, that this methods enable you to measure in a very reliable manner. Well, look, I guess, I guess in those in those settings, the um, this would one might think that this reflects more simply preferences of or tastes in society, right? So, well, they do reflect preferences, but well, fashion in general does not reflect the preferences of society at large. You but know, is, is, is it, fashion is the fashion industry a mirror? Is it reflecting society's preferences, or is it also about? In my reading, it reflects the preferences of the designers more than anything else. So I think it's also, I mean, generally, I have a rather supply-side understanding of, of the cultural industries. And I think, and that's the way that we think about color, is essentially it's an instrument for positioning between cultural producers. So cultural producers will observe each other and pay attention to each other's choices. And then they use color to position themselves vis-a-vis other producers. And I think this is very much can be observed in fashion, for example, where designers really react to each other rather than reacting to demand. They very much pay close attention to what's, uh, what other designers are doing. And then with their choices of materials and, and uh, their choices of colors, they react to the choices of other designers. And I think it's very similar in, in music. Of course, demand matters, but uh, we're particularly interested more in these developments on the supply side. And I think product catalogs and and manuals and digital images of any kind, they really can enable us to better understand this this dynamic, which I think up to this point has been rather latent. So these new technologies, they do afford opportunities to capture processes of positioning that that are, are not that obvious or not that apparent. So have you looked at the effect on the success of some of these bands? Were sort of the choices that these bands were making? I guess what you're saying is they were building their identity, they're trying to position themselves, but is it in any way possible to then see whether sort of this positioning paid off in a way, or or is that just impossible to check because it's really hard to claim any causality here? The big problem with analyzing success in the music industry is the absence of sales data. You know, it's almost impossible to get reliable sales data. And and one of the reasons for this is that, you know, black metal was an underground genre for very long. And and the records, they they don't even exist, you know, in the 1990s as to how much, you know, they were selling. So that, that general impediment to, you know, analyzing success and you know people usually use proxies for for commercial success and such as uh, you know record deals you know who do you sign with you know the prestige of the of the record company we, we haven't looked into this it's certainly possible and i think it's a very interesting question about the extent to which color contributed to the success of the genre it certainly it made them visible and this is something that comes out of the of our fieldwork of the interviews that we did with black metal musicians, but also the you know materials and books dedicated to black metal and observations by members of the black metal scene for whom you know the, the aesthetic considerations were indeed important. You know they, they really cared about you know the image and uh, the blackness of the image is something that resonates. And and in general, the black color is kind of the color of rebellion and. 
the fact that they were perceived, the genre was perceived as a uh, as a rebel genre, the, the, you know, a genre that rebelled against commercialization, is something that really resonated with young people, and not only in Norway but but internationally. So it certainly contributed, but how much it contributed, that's very difficult for us to say indeed. Yeah, I guess also the most com commercially successful albums that in, in metal were not made by some of the bands you're looking at, right? So I, was, I would wonder how this community would look at the success of Metallica's Black Album, which I guess this, this community you're looking at would consider a purely commercial uh, venture. Absolutely, the, there's certainly issues of authenticity that that are very prominent in this in this context, right? And and we know of quite a few bands that that essentially even sabotage themselves. Like you know, they, they I remember in particular one of the legendary black metal bands that uh, it it sounds like a joke, but you know they they mentioned uh, Dark Throne. They mentioned that uh, we're selling too many records. Like at one point, you know, their their record became very successful, and they were afraid that they were selling too much. You know, and of course, that's not something that you hear very often in in the commercial sector of, of music. But they were very much concerned about it because uh, it creates the impression that uh, they're sellouts, and and they were much more concerned about the authenticity of the band. Well, I guess I guess there's other examples in other genres, right? I mean, I think R R Radiohead is known to try to, after the success of OK Computer, Radiohead tried to sabotage themselves, and they're like, "Oh, we're going to make this super complicated record," and they made Kit A, and then it turned out to be another commercial bestseller. But so I guess they also have this love-hate relationship with fame and success. Maybe last question, maybe. So, what is your, what are you working on? What's going to be your next paper? I mean, are you going to take this? Quantitative approach to art and aesthetics further. Yeah, I would like to. It's this is. I mean, it feels very much like it's cutting edge and exciting. You know, the, this is the something that um, these developments. Of course, they originated in computer science, and I think you know we're at the stage now at which they're diffusing to the social sciences. And and still, the challenge for us in the social sciences is how to use them to our advantage right and and how to make them speak to really theoretical issues to substantive issues to issues of substantive importance and and that you know that's the challenge to integrate these methods and to allow them to enrich our theories and and we've been thinking about potentially following up with maybe a book and and we've defined this particular subdomain as relational aesthetics and we have some ideas indeed, you know, of, of you know what the next step steps could be. And, and I'm in particular thinking about applying these methods to uh, large databases of paintings and, and you know digital images of, of, of paintings and trying to understand fluctuations of color over time in the history of art. You know, how do colors change? I think you know this this would be a fantastic project and uh, Millions of images are becoming available, and and uh, that's something that I kind of have in the back of my mind at one point, you know, to to use this large databases and to do a color analysis of of, of this kind. So of course there are challenges, uh, methodological of, of all kind, but I certainly think this is the future, and uh, we can also think of possibilities to combine. As we were discussing, you know, to combine analysis of content with analysis of of style and you know colors with form, and I mean, there there are really possibilities for some really exciting pursuits along these lines.